Good morning. It's a pleasure and a privilege to be able to share again with you this morning. Selfishly, I love to be able to prepare a message because I learn so much as I read and pray and write and mull things over in my mind. God really challenged my thinking this summer as I prepared the message on Jonah. And this time I've developed an even greater love and appreciation for this congregation and the people of Zion, both past and present. So thank you for allowing me the opportunity to learn and grow and then to share it with you. Today is a very special day in the church year, a day when we stop to remember those who came before us, those who paved the way, those who taught us and nurtured us, those who cast visions for the community we live in, for the church we worship in, the families we were born and raised in. Those legacies live on in each and every one of us and in those we serve, in love, and teach for the sake of the gospel. None of us would be here today without them. We call them saints, not because they were perfect in this world, but because scripture calls all believers saints. When a Catholic friend asked me the other day what I would be preaching on, I replied, well, it will be All Saints Day. And he said, oh, which one? All of them, I replied. I think that might have blown his mind a little because he had nothing else to say on the subject. But never fear, I have plenty more to say on the subject. And so um, I'm excited now to take a look back with you on this All Saints Day to see what we can learn from those who have gone before us in faith. Let us pray. Dearest Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of being called your children, for your generous love, and for your unending mercy. Be with your saints who are gathered here this morning and with those who are in a spirit of remembrance around the globe today. Help those who are, who are hurting and seek after those who are lost. Open our hearts now to hear your word and to apply it to our lives as we continue to pursue Christ and Christ's priorities in the world. Amen. I'm going to adopt Pastor Rick's practice of reading the text together. However, I learned in the first service that mine isn't exactly the same as yours. I should have brought a Bible up here with me, but I didn't. So we'll do the best that we can. Um, so if you would turn with me to 1 John chapter 3, which is found on page 1184 in your pew Bible. 1 John is considered to be an epistle or a letter, but it does not contain the familiar greetings that we see in Paul's letters. And therefore, it's believed that it was meant to be circulated among assemblies of people and groups rather than being addressed to a particular individual or church. In these first verses of chapter 3, John introduces a topic that he expounds on in the following verses and chapters. Simply stated, John exuberantly tells those who read and hear his letter that they and he are children of God. And that with that honor comes both privilege and expectation of character. Let us look for those as we read the first three verses together. 
And I start with C, and I think you start with how, right? So I'll say C, you say how, and we'll see where we end up. All right? See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. As a former and continuing student of church history, I've always enjoyed learning about the character of God by learning about his workings in the lives of people, both past and present. That may sound a lot like the big God story that our children's director, Denise, told us about last week. In her brief presentation, Denise articulated exactly what I want you to keep in mind during the message this morning. And that is that we can learn a lot about the character of God and his relationship with us by sharing the stories of how God has worked in the lives of real people. Just as we learned in the story of Jonah this summer, God is the point. God's compassion is the point. It's not Jonah. It's not David. It's not Ruth. It's not Paul. It's not Mary. It's not you. It's not me. It's not the saints that we will talk about today. They and we may have amazing stories and testimonies to tell, but those stories are only worth telling as they relate to the big God story. A story about imperfect people who are created by and cared for by a perfect and merciful God. A big God story that's not just for our children, but for each and every one of us. The big God story didn't end with Revelation 22:21. It's still being written. We just have to pay attention. Be still and know that he is God and that he is alive and working in you. Writing your chapter of the big God story. This morning I'd like to reintroduce you to some of my favorite saints. As a group, they were keenly aware of the big God story, not only what was written in Scripture, but also what was written on their hearts. Who were these favorite saints of mine? Well, we know them as the Puritans. A few of them we know better as the Pilgrims, the ones who first came over to the New World on the Mayflower nearly 400 years ago, and whose thankful celebration we remember each November. But the Puritans encompass a much larger movement than just the 30-ish separatists who set sail in 1620. Some, like the pilgrims, separated from the Church of England, but others desired to purify the church from within. So when referring to the Puritans, I'm referring to individuals on both sides of the Atlantic, those in England and Holland, as well as the ones who came to the New World. The Puritans were very much aware of the big God story, not only from scripture, but also from experience, and chronicled God's provision, faithfulness, and mercy through the keeping of diaries. In doing so, they had an extraordinary awareness of God's providence. As Richard Sibbs wrote, if we were well read in the story of our own lives, 
we might have a divinity all our own, drawn out from the observations of God's particular dealings toward us. And Isaac Ambrose coined the term sanctified memory as the result of seeking and recording our lives with God as the main character as opposed to ourselves. Looking back to our text this morning, we find that it begins with that exclamation, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. We use this phrase often, but have we pondered what that means? The Puritan Thomas Watson wrote that a sign of being a child of God is to delight to be much in God's presence. And Richard Baxter asked, Is it a small thing in thine eyes to be beloved of God? Christian, believe this and think on it. Thou shalt be eternally embraced in the arms of that love which was from everlasting and will extend to everlasting. So being a child of God comes with certain privileges, including delighting in his presence and being eternally embraced in the arms of his love. The Puritans saw other privileges in the truth of Scripture for being in God's family, namely the renewal of the human soul, the forgiveness of sins, the life everlasting, the friendship of God, the glory of God, and holy living. As William Perkins expressed, the reward of conversion is that then thou then shalt thou rejoice in God's presence in the world and delight to think of God, to speak to God, to pray unto him, to meet him in his word and sacraments. The Puritans reveled in the freedom of knowing that their salvation was not dependent on their own efforts and not only held to a doctrine of grace, but were aware of the experience of grace. As expressed by Thomas Shepard, saints have an experiential knowledge of the work of grace, by virtue of which they come to know it as certainly as by feeling heat, we know that fire is hot, and by tasting honey, we know that it is sweet. In a similar way, they experienced the sacraments. As Thomas Watson wrote, in the word preached, we hear Christ's voice, but in the sacrament, we have his kiss. Do you know someone who truly embraces grace like this? Someone from your past or someone from your present? I'd like to share a little about one of Zion's saints with you. Her humility would never have allowed her to have been knowingly called a saint during her time here with us, but we have the privilege of remembering her and her walk today, and her name is Phyllis Johnson. Phyllis was the mother of Jan Salter and a sister-in-law to Ralph Johnson, who are both still active and present here this morning. Phyllis served on staff at Zion for more than 25 years, from about 1963 until her retirement in 1989. And those of you with young children, or who once had once young children, maybe are aware of the fact that the nursery is named after her whenever you drop off your little ones before church. As you may guess, Phyllis loved children, all children, and had a motherly way of caring for others. It's said that during her tenure here at Zion, the church welcomed several seminary interns, 
And Phyllis was known to care for these young men, even to the point of taking home and doing their laundry. Phyllis's support of others went beyond the practical, however, and she was loving and inspirational too. She sent hundreds and hundreds of cards in her lifetime, and her daughter Jan said she learned at one point that not only was her mother sending her cards of inspiration, but also to her friends while they were away at college. Phyllis loved and cared for the people of Zion. Eldon Johnson was the pastor during this time uh, that Phyllis was also at Zion. And when Pastor Eldon could not be at the church, Phyllis would be the one to receive those calls and uh, talk to those who came in who were seeking comfort and care. She even stepped in to visit parishioners in the hospital and shut-ins in their homes. Phyllis sang in the choir and played the piano for the youth. The day after I learned about Phyllis and chose to honor her today, I overheard one choir member say to another at rehearsal, do you remember when Phyllis Johnson would leave a piece of candy on the seats for the choir members? And so I've left a piece of candy on the seats for the choir members in honor of Phyllis and her many ministries to others today. Phyllis also cared for her friends and family, although doing so was not always easy. When Phyllis was a very young woman, her two brothers went off to fight in World War II, but only one of them came home. She was very close to Ernie and saved her letters, telling her to be careful with the young men while he was gone. Ernie was missing for a year before the family knew for certain that he had died, and this was quite a strain on Phyllis's parents, who took it very hard. Phyllis, however, became the rock that held her family together. She believed that God could bring her through anything, and although the stress of losing Ernie changed the family structure, Phyllis stayed solid and true to her faith, and this was true throughout her life. She had an experiential knowledge of the grace of God. She read the Bible and made notes in the margins of her struggles and joys, She enjoyed the fellowship with God and kept a list of names in her Bible of those she prayed for regularly. When I spoke with Jan to learn more about her mother, she brought a copy of a prayer that Phyllis had come across and kept in her Bible. It's a prayer about growing old gracefully, and the last paragraph reads, Keep me reasonably sweet. I do not want to be a saint. Some of them are so hard to live with. But a sour old person is the crowning works of the devil. Give me the ability to see good things in unexpected places and talents in unexpected people. And give me, O Lord, the grace to tell them so. Phyllis would never have wanted to be considered a saint. She knew her own flaws too well. But in spite of that, today we do honor her as one of Zion's saints who embraced the privilege of grace while here with us and is now enjoying the privileges of knowing Christ fully and being eternally embraced in the arms of his love. At this time, I want to turn our attention back to our text in 1 John, where we see that John tells the readers and hearers of his letter to purify themselves, just as Christ is pure. 
So along with the privileges of being a child of God, we're also instructed to conduct ourselves as children of God. Although they, like we, were by no means perfect in doing so, this is what the Puritans did best. As Leland Riken writes in his book, Worldly Saints, the Puritans as they really were, the Puritans held a strong sense of personal identity, of knowing who they were in Christ, and viewed themselves as being on a journey to God and to heaven. But that journey took them through this world and was not an escape from it. They lived simultaneously in two worlds, the invisible spiritual world and the physical world of earthly existence. Both were completely real and there was no separation of sacred and secular. As mentioned before, the Puritans believed that God's truth is rooted in the Bible. And according to William Perkins, the word of God must be our rule and square whereby we are to frame and fashion all our actions. To the Puritans, the mark of true Christianity was, it, was that it made a difference in how people actually live. And this was evidenced in their individual lives, their families, their vocations, their churches and schools, and throughout their communities. Godliness in every phase of life was the Puritan goal, and an effortless Christian life had no appeal to them. Nicholas Lockyer wrote, What have I of God, and how might I have more? More of his love, more of his power working in my soul. Purifying ourselves just as Christ is pure means asking to be more and more like him by asking for more and more of him. Yet this was not meant for introspection only to the Puritan being a child of God meant doing as a child of God. John Bunyan, who is known as the author of The Pilgrim's Progress, wrote that at judgment a person will not be asked, did you believe, but rather... Were you doers or talkers only? To the Puritans, all vocations, in fact, everything anyone did, came with a holy calling. It was said that the pious tradesman will know that his shop as well as his chapel is holy ground. And as William Perkins wrote, the meanness of the calling doth not abase the goodness of the work. For God looketh not on the excellence of the work, but on the heart of the worker. The aims of education in Puritan society was to become like God and to learn to do everything justly, skillfully, and magnanimously. Therefore, education was highly valued and sought after. Consider this. Harvard was established in 1636, just 16 years after the Mayflower's voyage. Schooling and discipleship began at home, though. It was believed that if the church of God was to continue among them, they must bring it into their households and nourish it in their families. It was the aim of a Puritan to not only purify themselves as Christ is pure, but to purify their families and their society. They are known for their desire to purify the church. They are the Puritans, right? 
They made their mark nearly 100 years after Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the doors at Wittenberg as they continued the quest to reform and purify Christ's church, as we've been learning for the last two weeks. It is worth mentioning here that although the Puritans may seem very staunch and stoic, they also very much enjoyed life and lived it to the full. We picture them in their plain black suits and dresses and hats, and we may begin to think of them as kind of a pre-modern 17th century Amish, pulling away from the greater society to preserve or hold on to a particular way of life. The reality, however, is quite the opposite. The black garb we think they always wore was only their Sunday best. The rest of the week they enjoyed brightly colored clothes. They rejected the medieval view permeating the Catholic Church that sexual desires were evil and that it did not matter if the object of the desire was one's spouse. In fact, at least one New England man was excommunicated from the church for neglecting the sex life in his marriage. The Puritans ate, drank, and were merry. They believed that society was ordained by God and it was where they were expected to make Christian principles succeed. They had no guilt about making money. It was considered a form of stewardship. The Puritans were active yet introspective and mastered living in both this world and the next. The Puritans fully embraced seeking to live a life of Christian character, as did another of Zion's saints, Pastor Eldon Johnson. Pastor Eldon was the father of Bruce and Greg Johnson, who, along with members of their families, remain very active in the life of Zion today. I referred to Pastor Eldon while telling Phyllis's story because the two are inextricably intertwined. They both served over the, the same three decades. Pastor Eldon was energetic and innovative and a gifted pulpit-pounding preacher. He was an accomplished musician and vocalist, and his musical legacy lives on in his sons, who regularly lead all of us in worship on Sunday mornings. Pastor Eldon's favorite verse was Acts 5.42. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. From the sounds of it, this would describe Pastor Eldon's passion and energy well. He had a vision to pursue Christ and to pursue Christ's priorities in the world, to ensure that the lost were saved and that hurting people were helped. And in the later years of his retirement, he reached out particularly to those participating in the We Believe Recovery Ministry. Pastor Eldon's Christian character was evident in every aspect of his life, even on the badminton and racquetball courts and even on the golf course. It is said that if he missed a shot, he would say, Oh, Eldon, and on occasion might add, I'd swear if I thought it would help. He loved his family and referred to his son's wives as daughters in grace, as opposed to daughters-in-law. Pastor Eldon came to Zion in 1961, just as the congregation was taking a leap of faith to move outside of the city and here to its current location. 
His son Bruce said that he remembers playing in this sanctuary when it was just a shell of what we see here today. Pastor Eldon was truly a people person and loved everyone. One of his best friends was Cy Goldman. Yes, Goldman, not Johnson. As I'm learning, most covenanters are or once were. The Jewish community sponsored dinners, and at least once, Cy asked Eldon to give the invocation for him because he could not attend. Pastor Eldon was the senior and only pastor, except for the interns mentioned before. So it's said that Phyllis and another secretary, Gertrude Johnson, of course, were the ones he really, who really ran the church. But Pastor Eldon and his faithful character steered the ship. There's so much more that I've learned about Pastor Eldon and Phyllis and their time here at Zion, but I just don't have time to share it now. If you're curious, ask Bruce or Jan or Greg or Ralph or others who lived it about the beast of a printer, printing press that was in the office, or the drive-in church that Pastor Eldon established in the parking lot outside, complete with recorded organ music and Pastor Eldon's melodious tenor voice leading everyone to worship from their cars. Pastor Eldon embraced life and was consistent in his character, whether in the pulpit, at the dinner table, in the community, or swinging a racket or club. Like a good Puritan, Pastor Eldon lived life to the full while never forgetting where he came from or where he was going. And so we honor him as one of Zion's saints who strove to take the character of Christ while with us and is now with and like Christ fully, just as is promised to us all. And so I leave you with this parting word from Thomas Shepard. Remember the end of your life, which is coming back again to God and fellowship with God. May we embrace the privileges of being children of God, for that is what we are. We must believe this and live as though we truly believe it. And in the same way, Scripture calls us all saints, though we still sin. But we must believe it is so and strive to live to that high calling, just as Phyllis and Eldon did. And so as it's said, to dwell above with saints we love, that will be the glory. To dwell below with saints we know, that's another story. Amen.